Welcome to the EO Podcast, where we amplify and celebrate all forms of employee ownership. Hello, my friends. Thanks for listening. My name is Brett Kiesling, and as it says on my business cards, I'm a passionate advocate for employee ownership. I'm joined on the podcast today with Mark Kassau, a very talented, nationally recognized ESOP attorney with Clark Hill. Mark, how are you? Doing very well. How are you doing, Brett? Good. I'll talk in a moment about some of your ESOP work, but why don't you tell us uh, real quick about Clark Hill? Sure. Clark Hill is a large national law firm, uh, offices all around the country. We have about 650 attorneys in multidisciplinary uh, practice groups. Uh, I spend all my time, my, my space in the uh, ESOP world, and uh, I've been um, practicing ESOPs or ESOP law for over 15 years now. And Mark, you actually started uh, with several of the, the most well-known uh, ESOP boutique forms. And uh, to be honest, as people who regularly listen to the podcast, they've heard about my origin in ESOP world and Rich Heaters and the transaction that led to uh, Capital Trustees. And Mark, in 2008, you were actually uh, one of the lawyers working on Rich Heaters in my very first transaction. Yes, I did have the pleasure in working on it with you guys. That was a a lot of fun uh, back in the day, that transaction. Well, it was our first taste, and as, uh, uh, for people who aren't aware, that transaction led to two things. Rich Heater was hired as our trustee. He had never done that before. And I was hired as president and CEO of the uh, uh, company that became an ESOP. So for about two and a half years, I ran that company. And uh, then afterwards, Rich Heater and I formed Capital Trustees, and you've, uh, uh, I know that you've represented me uh, when I was with Capital Trustees. I assume that you still do. And I can just say, Mark, uh, uh, you're as talented an ESOP lawyer as, as there is in the country. And I appreciate your uh, taking the time to join us. Ah, thank you very much. Those are nice words. So, Mark, let's talk. Uh, like everybody, your life has been modified under the coronavirus, and uh, uh, you are sequestered at home, working at home with your wife and two kids. And uh, yes. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I said yes, yeah, and and going stir crazy in the process. <laughs> I understand that. And ironically, Mark, as you know from my life, even as a trustee, I've been working remotely for so many years. It really hasn't changed. You know the the fact that the pandemic is obviously taking uh, everybody's concern. But for the pandemic, I'm just as likely to have been on the telephone with you recording a podcast for a different issue. So, you know, it's just funny, uh, interesting for me to watch others who are uh, uh, going through. But meanwhile, as you're sequestered at home, you're very much hard at work. And uh, I know that uh, we are in great uncertainty, as everybody does with the uh, coronavirus. And you're going to talk to us today about uh, a couple of different things. But very broadly, there's a, uh, an appreciable effect on transactions and uh, then there are also just uh, some general company issues and plan maintenance and that sort of thing that we'll cover. Am I right? Exactly, yes. So with that, Mark, take it away and just share with us what uh, uh, you're looking at as important legal issues at the moment. Yeah, and I, I think that the hot topic these days is trying to find a path forward in current ESOP transactions. And I think there are two different buckets, if you will. We, you have to bifurcate the transactions. One bucket deals with deals that the term sheet, the letter of intent has already been negotiated, and now we're in the production of the transaction document phase 
what what do we do now that the deal has been negotiated but the but but has not closed yet and um i think in those circumstances there's there's three different approaches and and they're not mutually exclusive you can combine these options the first option obviously would be to renegotiate uh purchase price and um you know, based on the uncertainty, the fluctuations in the marketplace, uh, I think uh, re- renegotiating purchase price would be a, a reasonable approach in these days, even if you have assigned and executed a letter of intent. Um, another thought would be to for the trustee and, and the company to take a pause, to take a moratorium, if you will, for 30, 60 days, just to time out, uh, just to see where the market's and the uncertainty calms down and see if we can move forward in a month or two. And again, these are not mutually exclusive. So you take a 30-day timeout and everyone wants to move forward. Well, things might have changed drastically in 30 days where a renegotiation of the purchase price would be warranted as well. And the third option um, would be to perhaps negotiate a clawback, clawback provision in, uh, in the document where if the company fails to meet certain target EBITDA requirements over a two- or three-year period, you would effectively claw back the purchase price, reduce the seller notes, um, and, uh, you know, for example, you have a 10% reduction on, on purchase price if you, if you miss the mark by a significant uh, variable. And, again, that's not mutually exclusive, so you can renegotiate purchase price introduce a callback, take a 30-day timeout. You can do everything. Uh, and there's no one right way to, to deal with this situation. Mark, let me, let me pause and ask you a couple of questions, as I, uh, if I may. And I want to stress what you just said and, and go a little bit further. There is not a mutually exclusive solution. The other thing is that you are speaking very broadly. Uh, as we've pointed out, uh, our friend Rob Hilton was on the podcast a week ago talking about valuation issues, and you may hear us talk about examples for the listeners, and you might be at a company, and Mark, you and I might say two or three different things in the course of the podcast, and the company will say, boy, all three of those apply to us, we're going to do what they say. And the fact of the matter is, they're going to have a fourth detail that would make you say, wait, no, it's not a good plan. So we want people to, we're talking in general generalities. So with the items that you had just talked about, Mark, um, let's talk about the pause first. And I want to stress again, I was a trustee for seven years up until uh, June of 2019. And with nothing was more mindful to me, as you know, than, than my personal liability acting as a trustee. So right off the bat, a pause to me makes perfect sense. And I'm going to say from my perspective, Mark, I'm not even sure, for me, I'd be thinking in terms of pausing with a time to revisit the issue. And what I mean by that is, as you're aware, as we're recording this on uh, Thursday, March 26th, President Trump is indicating he'd like the the country to be reopened for business by Easter. Well, the fact of the matter is, if we were sitting here today on March 26th saying the company's going to be reopened for business on Easter, uh, that's one set of facts. On the other hand, we don't really know that today, right? Absolutely not. And I think that's pure speculation. 
at this point in time that the country, you know, quote unquote, is going to be reopened by Easter. Um, I think you've got to follow science and you've got to follow the, uh, the, uh, uh, um, the damage that the virus is doing around the country before you even think about lifting these uh, stay-at-home orders for the various states and try to reopen or reinvigorate the, uh, the economy. Um, so, you know, and it, all, it all goes back to the uncertainty where, where, where we sit today. There is so much volatility in the stock market. There is so much uncertainty in terms of the labor markets and um, the viability of various companies. Obviously, some industries are not impacted, unlike others. For example, uh, supermarkets, they're, they're doing fantastic, at least in the short run. Um, people are, are buying up groceries uh, like like they're going out of style. So, but other industries, uh, such as the jewelry business, for example, may not be doing very well at this point in time. So it's industry by industry specific, and that may be a key driver for what what tactic, what strategy you you utilize. And I think a 30-day pause for most industries is probably um, a very good idea. Uh, at least in today's environment. Looking at that again, Mark, is the 30 days not as, uh, and we used to go through this as, you know, in, in as average transactions would come close to, you know, closing time, we'd say, well, maybe the closing's in a couple weeks. You know, there'd be a little bit of, of when all the work is done, but at the very least, the pause in its managing expectations, it, you want to do the transaction right, but would you agree, Mark, the, the fundamental concern is nobody wants, nobody in ESOP world wants a repeat of what happened in the 2008 recession where the pause needs to happen so that people don't rush through allowing three or four or five years down the road the DOL to say, hey, you shouldn't have done that, and suddenly we have all kinds of regulatory stuff because people did not pause. Is that part of the concern? That's exactly right. That's a very, very valid concern. We don't want to, you know, we know the DOL looks at uh, deals in hindsight, which is always 2020 vision. Uh, we don't have the luxury of hindsight. We're, we're going through it today. But with, with the eye on potential DOL uh, criticism, you know, years down the road, a 30-day pause makes a lot of sense to just take a breather, see where the markets are going, see how the business is, is doing, holding up, and, 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 and just see, see if there's less uncertainty uh, in a month from now than, than it is today. And I, I, I want to introduce one more concept, and that, and that really comes into play with new deals that just got started the last week or two. Um, there's another workaround that, I, that, I'm, that I'm seeing some companies um, uh, gravitate towards, and that is negotiating all of the non-purchase price deal terms um, and leave the purchase price bracketed with the full understanding that as we move through the transaction, as we do our due diligence, as we get ready to close, we will revisit the purchase price. And maybe at that point in time, we will introduce a clawback or we'll do, um, uh, uh, or, or do other, other, you know, mechanisms to, to ensure that, uh, that the purchase price is, is well justified. And I think and Mark, by, by doing that, you, 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 you see a path forward and you have momentum and you keep the deal moving in the right direction.
And Mark, let me say for as cautious as I am, and I shared for the reasons, I'm, I'm frankly glad that I'm not a trustee in today's environment, but I agree with everything that you said. Let all the work go through. And, and again, Rob Hilton on the Valuation Podcast uh, and I spoke about this. Do all the work. Do all the due diligence. Get all the documents go through and and for example the trustee team no reason they can't you know meet and it's always by phone anyway but with their valuation advisors their legal team and move ahead but pause on the negotiations uh in other words you're exactly right tee up all the work tee up the transaction but the one thing that i would stress and and it's with the dol look back and you can say if you agree or i'm taking it too far when uh i hear pause on negotiations of the price. Don't shortcut it. Don't try and have any back channel. I mean, truly, all the work is teed up and then everybody stand down. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. If, if, if you're starting a new deal and it takes you 60, 90 days to get to a point where you negotiated everything but the purchase price, you know, and if you're looking at uh, uh, June and maybe there's less uncertainty in June, maybe, then, then you can focus on purchase price and negotiate that in, in, in good faith. But if there's still uncertainty in June and you've already done everything else that you possibly could, well, you go to the other option of, of, uh, of another pause, of a pause, and you can do a moratorium for, for another 30 days. And, and, and just you, you can't pull the trigger too soon if, if there's still uncertainty out there, I think is the, is the true message. Let me um, share again, if I can, an anecdote from my trustee days. And you've probably been in more uh, than one due diligence meeting where you saw that I would do this. and Or I'm sorry, the kickoff meeting. And, and at the kickoff, the due diligence meeting, generally to kick off a transaction, all of the advisors come to, to meet. The, the trustee is there to do a site visit. Valuation advisors are there. Our counsel is there. And the company's advisors are, are there as well, the company's lawyers and ESOP lawyers, and oftentimes members of the management team or board. So it's not unusual to have 12 or 15 people in a conference room for a kickoff due diligence meeting. And there comes a time, Mark, or there came a time, I should say, in every single due diligence meeting where I would look at the selling shareholder or selling shareholders, and I would say, in the event that the transaction goes badly, and the DOL is going to launch an investigation. Well, everybody else in this room are advisors and possibly witnesses. You selling shareholder and me as trustee, or my partner and I, would be co-defendants. So when we are saying pause, I certainly had it from the view that trustees need to be cautious, but I wanna make it really clear it's in the best interest of a selling shareholder to not go through with a deal at this moment without the pause that you're talking about, right? That's a great point. It's, it's in everyone's best interests to make sure that when we transact, we have ample certainty in the marketplace where we can, in good faith, move forward and, and, and pull the trigger and, and, and transact. Um, the pause that I keep talking about is like not only for the benefit of the trustee, but it is for the selling shareholder as well. Uh, it's to protect all parties involved. And, and that's, that's a great point, Brett. Mark, let me now just move on to the uh, one other prong that you had mentioned, clawbacks. And 
I understand why you mention it as a possible workaround. You're absolutely correct to mention it uh, as a possible workaround. When, uh, in the last couple of years, and, and again, broadly, although you said this, a clawback is during a transaction, uh, provisions are put in that if, if metrics aren't met, and I, if metrics aren't met, and I think you mentioned EBITDA is a common one, there can be other metrics and that kind of thing. But if the metrics are not met, the selling shareholder would have to either return some funds or not accept future payments, however it was, we would claw back the purchase price. Have I generally explained the clawback correctly? Exactly. That's uh, yeah. That's mechanically. That's uh, that's how it would work. You know, the re- reduction of the seller notes is 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 a, a good example of how a clawback is uh, effectuated. So here, Mark, is my question. In the last couple of years, there was, I'd say, uh, a, a conversation, maybe some discomfort in some quarters. And again, this is from when I was a trustee wearing that hat that the DOL could possibly interpret a clawback as even you, trustee, didn't have faith in the price. You know, that if if a clawback philosophically, and I'm not saying that, that this is a definitive uh, position, and you may well disagree, but the clawback uh, almost seemed as like an escape valve that the DOL, I just wasn't comfortable in the last couple of years that the DOL would like that. I think when you transact, you, you, you know, the valuation advisor comes up with a range of value. And if you're transacting within that range of value, you're, you're, you're sending a strong signal that you think you're not paying, overpaying for, for, for the stock, you the trustee. And a clawback is simply a mechanism that says, look, if by chance your projections didn't prove true, or if by chance bad things happen that we don't foresee them happening today when we transact, then we're going to have an adjustment to your purchase price purely to protect the ESOP and the participants and beneficiaries. I think you can make a strong argument that a clawback could be looked upon favorably. And I just want to add one more thing. Uh, Mechanically, maybe you do a part redemption and part sale to the ESOP where the redemption piece has the clawback attached to it. And it's not necessarily the ESOP purchase of the remaining employer securities that would be uh, associated with the clawback. And Mark, just to just to explain those terms, and, and everything you said is very helpful, uh, but for the casual listener, let's say a selling shareholder has 100,000 shares, and I'm just keeping this easy for uh, math. When you talk about partial redemption, partial share, what would be, and we'll just say 50-50, 50% of the shares? Yeah, so the, the, the company would redeem 50,000 shares. Meaning they the go same, back to the company into the... the uh, it goes back to the company and say it's for a seller note. So the company issues a note to the selling shareholder. And then the ESOP, you know, simultaneously will purchase the other 50,000 shares at the same per share purchase price. And maybe the ESOP received uh, through through the company got bank financing, and the ESOP was able to cash out the selling shareholder. So the seller notes that are associated with the redemption piece of it could have a clawback associated with it. If you don't achieve EBITDA targets over a two or three year period of time, the seller notes get reduced. And that and that that is a little bit cleaner, I think, 
than um, having it directly implicated with the ESOP. It's also, Mark, a sign, and we could do an entire podcast on this aspect of a transaction, and my friend, I may invite you on to do that. But it's also a sign of, of what you've made the point earlier in this podcast, where we pause because it's appropriate, but there are all kinds of tools in the toolkit when the transaction comes to make a transaction move forward in a way that's appropriate for everybody. That's exactly right. There's, there's no one way to do an ESOP transaction. There's multiple, multiple ways. All right, Mark, you are as good a transaction attorney as I know, but you are also a, a company attorney. Uh, in other words, you, you, you provide legal advice to ESOP companies uh, on an ongoing basis, so not just in the transaction mode. And I understand you have some thoughts along those lines about... Uh, I do. Um, one thing that, that, that has to be given some thought in this environment is um, large layoffs resulting in partial plan terminations of the ESOP. And if you had a partial plan termination, you're going to automatically vest plan participants' account balances, which could uh, have a dramatic effect on ultimate repurchase liability obligations of the company. Let me just interrupt and and break that down to simple terms. I, I think you did a great job explaining it. But what we're, what we're saying, if you compare it to a non-ESOP company, they lay off their company, uh, they lay off their employees, the payroll obligation ends. We'll set aside unemployment and all that stuff for a moment, but their payroll obligation ends. In an ESOP company, if you lay off a large number of employees that triggers the partial plan termination, your payroll stops, but you are incurring the repurchase liability. They, they fully vest. They must be paid off according to the plan. So you may inadvertently, if you're not careful, be saying, hey, we can save some payroll and simultaneously um, come up with a, a huge debt regarding the repurchase. Exactly. And then the, the, the whole concept of having a partial plan termination is based on a rebuttable presumption that you have a 20% or greater reduction in your workforce. And I, and I want to emphasize that it's rebuttable because if you furlough 20% of your workforce, for example, for 60 days, 90 days, and then you rehire all of them when the uncertainty kind of goes away and things start uh, picking up, well, that's not going to be, uh, I don't think, a, uh, a partial plan termination. Whereas if you lay off 20% of your workforce, no intention of rehiring them in the short run, and you don't, uh, the plan year expires and you don't rehire them, um, yeah, that, that, that is going to be a, um, a partial plan termination requiring the full vesting of all the affected uh, participants. So um, just something to think about, you know, uh, obviously you can't control those factors, but uh, it is a rebuttable, rebuttable presumption. May I just uh, uh, ask a question on that? Because you drew a distinction between furlough and layoffs. And generally, the businesses that I'm in contact with during the crisis, and a lot of these are much smaller businesses, you know, certainly not uh, hundreds or thousands of employees, but they are using the phrase layoff, and it's with the, generally, we hope to bring you back as soon as we can open. 
it sounds like companies need to be a little more careful and make a distinction between layoff and furlough because that could have effects down the road. Well, I, I don't really think it matters what you call them or call the uh, the, the uh, reduction in workforce. It's how you treat it. You know, if you, if, you, if you treat it as truly as a furlough and you hire them back in 60 days, that's very different than if you have a layoff and you don't hire them back ever or you wait two years or whatever. Um, Got it. So don't the, get caught those up on those the are different. It's semantics are just semantics. You can call it whatever you want. And you were going to make another point, Mark. Thanks for that. You were going to make another point about the repurchase obligation? Well, in addition to repurchase obligations, if you have a, um, a strong reduction in workforce and you're an S corporation, you could create what is known as a 49P problem, um, which basically says if you have too few employee participants in an S corp ESOP, you can run afoul of 49P, which would be very disastrous and very problematic for, for the company and the ESOP itself. So, you, you know, not that, not that that should be the driver of your decision to lay off employees, but that's just a, a fallout consequence that you should be uh, uh, thinking about. And another thought is that if you have too large of a reduction in your workforce, you may have problems servicing the ESOP loan because the ESOP loan is based on 25% of eligible comp, eligible payroll of the, uh, of the workforce. And if you don't have a large enough payroll to service the ESOP debt, that could create problems as well that you would have to think about uh, having some workarounds and things of that sort. So, Mark, on the 409P uh, issue and the other issues that you've raised, one of my concerns is that there are awful lot of ESOP companies, and we point out, I think, the latest number um, that one of the organization bandies about is 6,200 ESOP companies, and as is pretty well known, only about 800 of them participate in any of the organizations. My concern is that if you're an ESOP and you're talking to your counsel whoever they are, and your counsel might be a spectacular business attorney, but if they're not referencing things like 409P, if they're not referencing uh, uh, some of the other issues you're mentioning, it seems to me that that's a really appropriate time to try and get some ESOP-savvy counsel on your team. Absolutely, yes. Um, hopefully, most uh, companies that have ESOPs have ESOP counsel. That's not always the case. And, yeah, I couldn't stress enough to, to, to bounce any uh, layoff ideas or any other ideas of corporate restructuring off of an ESOP attorney um, to, to see if that has negative consequences. In my career as a trustee, one of the regular type of uh, engagements that we took was where companies were transitioning to an external trustee for the uh, first time. Good companies, well-run companies, but it was not unusual for us to find that their business counsel had really no ESOP experience. And, you know, even in terms of valuation advisors, uh, as you've probably discovered, if an external trustee is asked to come in and consider the qualifications under the Great Bank Settlement Agreement uh, of whether a valuation advisor is appropriate in the ESOP world, it's not surprising if, if a company that 
isn't involved in the association has some of these advisors that just don't have the savvy. So I want to stress, and it's me saying it, not you, Mark, but if, if again, your council hasn't been proactive and talking specifically about uh, ESOP issues as it relates to layoffs, terminations, and this thing. You really want to look at ESOP counsel. And Mark, you're not here to do a commercial for yourself, but for example, someone like yourself could be retained as ESOP counsel, leaving in place the general business counsel, the other advisors, that kind of thing, right? Absolutely. I mean, they can hear you for the yeah. ESOP yeah, expertise. Have right. a suit in, come, for, come, come in for a precision uh, matter and, 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 and then leave and, and, or step aside and let the uh, general corporate counsel, you know, re- resume representation of the client. One of the things about that, uh, uh, if you were to play that role, sometimes the solutions can be complicated, but identifying the problems is actually, you're really adept at that, right? Yes. Yeah, I can definitely. You know, there, there are certain things, and, and by the way, all of the ESOP lawyers as your, um, uh, at your caliber of talent, in other words, I don't want to turn this just into a uh, commercial for Mark, uh, but everybody at your uh, caliber of talent, for example, when they talk about uh, layoffs, you're immediately going to be looking at you know, the effect of payroll, the 409P, what could be uh, you know, a partial plan termination and that kind of thing. You just, these are the issues that you've spent your, uh, the last 15 years working on. Exactly. So what other things uh, should companies be looking at right now? Yeah, another thought is, and this comes into play if you have an ESOP that is cash rich, has a lot of cash in the ESOP. It would be a mature ESOP that's been around for a long time. You could consider amending the plan document to allow for special in-service distributions for, and I'm making up an example, anyone that's has seven or more years of service fully vested, you can allow them to uh, <clears throat> take out in cash up to, say, 50% of their vested account balance. That, that could be a way for allowing participants to get additional cash in their pockets in, in, in these uncertain times. I think that's a great idea, and, and it's the first time that I've, I've heard it in this context of uncertain times, I assume the company needs to be uh, have the funds to do that? In other words, what's the downside? Well, that's why I said if the ESOP is cash rich, if, if the ESOP already has a lot of cash in it, you may, you may want to consider that. If the, ESOP, if the ESOP is cash poor and the company is having cash flow um, strain and, and can't make contributions to the ESOP, at least in, in order to fund this uh, strategy, then this is not the right strategy for for that company. So again, if you're listening, uh, it's it's very specific to the facts of your company. Exactly. And one last item I just want to mention: uh, allocation issues for laid off participants. A lot of times, the ESOP plan document says you don't get an allocation for the current plan year unless you have a thousand hours of service and employed in the last day of the planned year. So say someone gets laid off in May or June, and they only have seven or 600 hours of service, and obviously they don't make it to the end of the year, uh, they're not employed at the end, of the end of the year, they're not gonna receive an allocation for that year. Companies may want to consider amending their plans to loosen up that 1,000 hour service and last day of the planned year requirement 
uh, to help out maybe uh, laid off or terminate laid off participants. One of the advantages of doing that, if you look at it this way, is that if a com- if an employee owner has to be laid off. April, May, June, you know, again, as this plays out, it doesn't provide extra benefit per se, although you're waiving the provision that they're employed on the last day of the plan year, often but not always December 31st. But what it is saying is, hey, employee owner, none of this is your fault either. So at the very least, we're going to give you the credit for the time you did work before the pandemic caused the crisis. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's no additional cost to the company because the contribution is the contribution and it gets allocated amongst all eligible participants. You're just loosening the criteria of who is eligible to receive an allocation for that particular uh, plan year. And that fits into a very positive gesture on my part that is very real that I would hope that that companies would look at that plan amendment. Mark, I I hadn't thought about that or I haven't seen that talked about. I think that's a uh, a great suggestion and a great way to uh, uh, fulfill, you know, the employee ownership premise that we're all in this together. Exactly. Exactly. I have an issue on my plate regarding interim valuations, but is there any uh, more issues that you wanted to discuss? No, I think think that's pretty much it for now, yeah. So let me ask Mark, and this has been great. As I've mentioned, Rob Hilton was on uh, an episode a week or so ago and talking about valuations in uh, the coronavirus context. And I had done a mini-cast several weeks ago about the effects of the coronavirus on the 1231-19 valuation. And it really was short and sweet, but the general premise, as you'd expect, Mark, was coronavirus wasn't known and knowable as of December 31st, 2019. So despite the fact that this may play havoc with future projections, future earnings, Generally speaking, the coronavirus uh, shouldn't be taken into account as 1231. I've said that very simplistically, but do you agree? Oh, I agree 100%. The other thing that I've pointed out is that in my view, and this is not just with my former uh, trustee hat on, but, but as a sincere advocate for employee ownership, that the valuations must be held sacrosanct. And that's why I think it's very important that, you know, Forecasts that are done in April don't fit into that December 31st valuation. One of the things that's being discussed in ESOP world, and it should be discussed, I don't quibble that it's being discussed, is interim valuations as a way, among other things, to manage the repurchase obligations. And in my view, not necessarily in a positive way. But could you explain to us uh, the mechanics of an interim valuation, why it would be done, and why companies would look at doing it now as a response to the coronavirus? I'd be pleased to. So, um, obviously, subsequent to 2019, you know, we have this great uncertainty with the virus, and it's wreaking havoc in the marketplace. It's causing significant uh, uh, downturns with various uh, companies and a lot of industries. And because of that, their valuation, if you were to stop the film, say March 31st, for example, would be vastly different than it was back in December 31, 2019. So the idea of doing an interim valuation is to pick uh, a mid uh, a point in time, again, March 31st, for example, and do the valuation as of that point in time and use that valuation 
for various purposes, such as uh, effectuating diversification, segregation, maybe even distributions on a going forward basis. So, um, as Brett indicated, it, it would reduce repurchase obligations of the company because you're ratcheting the value down to make it consistent with reality, where, where, where the world exists today, not where it was back in December 31st, 2019. The crisis is bringing everything into stark relief, you know, that we can all see things in a different way. It's always been a factor that valuations would come out at the company's year-end, you know, wherever their fiscal year is, again, normally December 31st. But by the time the valuation gets completed five or six months down the road, material facts would change. And so there's always been some tension, and we've done podcasts in the, in, in the past, and I've had clients who've faced this, where the valuation creates I'll say an unexpected distribution problem. And by the way, when we're talking about distribution, segregation, that sort of thing, it's what you'd see at the conferences as, when do we get our money? That's what's very important about this, Mark, and I, I know you agree, but for the listeners, this is how people get their money. So I understand that there's a, a point in time where, hey, our reality is different, we want to do an interim valuation. But the one thing, and this takes us back to where we started, Mark, I'm not sure how a decision could be made now whether the interim valuation should be March, end of March, end of April, end of June, you know, et cetera. So right off the bat, isn't the pause going to play a little bit of an effect in that decision? It could. And I also want to stress that the plan document itself controls. So you got to look at the plan document to see if, if an interim valuation is even allowable, permissible. Um, and if it's not, then maybe you, what you do is you, you amend the plan and implement that on a going forward basis, not for this current plan year. There's, there are similar things, for example, plans often, I'm going to say, um, uh, usually when I would see plans with new uh, ESOPs, that generally speaking, and again, if I'm mistaking this, please correct me, generally speaking, the plan would say that when it comes time for an employee to separate, and assuming they vested five years, uh, or, or they're fully vested, normally it means five years of service, but the, if they're fully vested, there's often, as long as it's not a minimal distribution amount, there's often a, a wait period of some amount of time before distributions begin, and often, and this is the key point, the plan provides that while distributions are happening over the course of five years, the distribution is based on the changing valuation year after year. That's, so, why, I'm, that's why I'm saying that you have to make certain that the plan document allows for this concept of interim valuations, because if, it, if it's hardwired in that you have to use the, the December 31 valuation, um, then, then you, may, you may be stuck with that. And similarly, Mark, if your plan says that the distributions for the, um, again, vested, the former employee owners at this point, the retirees or those who have separated, is um, using each current valuation during the course of the payments, the plan, if there were segregation, and what that means, 
horrible word even in this context, but what that means is you freeze out your former employees and they're locked in for, for example, if segregation were permitted, somebody's going to get paid off at whatever the first year of the payoff is, that's going to be the value for the entire payoff period. Am I saying that right? I, I, yes, I think so. But keep in mind, if you don't have financial wherewithal to effectuate planned segregation, you don't segregate for that particular particular year. So I can I can see a very good example where an interim valuation, call it March 31st, would allow planned segregation to, to, to be effective when, if you based it off of the December 31 value, you wouldn't have enough money to do so. These again, Mark, uh, first of all, good time to review the plan. We have always said, you've said at every uh, conference you've spoken at, uh, as have I, everybody, it's always good to dust off the plan and review it. Now, there are important decisions to be made, and in terms of plan amendments, again, folks, back when I was a practicing attorney, I practiced business law, I've never been an ESOP lawyer, uh, you don't want a general attorney in my opinion, as a former trustee, you don't want a general attorney modifying your plan. But now's the time to look at the plan and see if there are changes that are necessary or warranted with the crisis. But you did say prospectively, generally speaking, without locking you in, you believe that, um, do you believe that the plan can be backdated and amended in the past? Or generally speaking, if changes are made today, it wouldn't affect December 31st anyway of 2019. If, if you're talking about making interim distributions on a going forward basis and your plan document doesn't permit that, I think you could amend the plan, but it wouldn't be effective till next plan year. Um, and I would, I would want to give that some additional thought, but the conservatism in, in, in me would suggest that we wait to implement it to you know to, to next year, which negates the uh, the usefulness of that strategy. Well, and, obviously, and you would want to do the uh, interim valuation this year to take full benefit of it. So, Mark, what you're saying, just on a very practical basis, and I think you use the word conservative a little bit. There may be some who want to try and make uh, retroactive changes to the plan. The problem is that if a company does that, it's what you call possibly a bad fact. It's something to argue about before the DOL, the judges, whoever. Maybe you win, but meanwhile, if all the stuff is prospective moving forward, you've taken away a potential argument that you've done something very wrong. Is that a good way to sum it up? Yep, exactly. I, I totally agree. Mark, is there anything else uh, on your list? You've been absolutely wonderful. Is there anything else on your list that you'd like to discuss? No, I think I think I covered everything that I wanted to, uh, to chat about, but thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. Mark, you're a talented lawyer. I'm very grateful uh, uh, for the years of service uh, and, and, more importantly, the friendship through the years. You know, I've had the uh, pleasure of meeting Lori and your kids a couple of times, and I, I want all the best for you. But meanwhile... In this very challenging time for everybody, ESOP world might be on a little bit of a pause, but it is moving and and moving uh, smartly. So, Mark, just thank you for everything that you're doing. Thank you. Take care. 
And with that, this episode of the podcast comes to a close. Thanks again to Mark Casau of Clark Hill. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us Friday for the ESOP minicast. And as the world continues to change day by day with coronavirus and our reaction to it, just know that we at the podcast are thinking of you. We're all in this together, and together we will get through it. Take care. We'd love to hear from you. To contact us, find us on Facebook at Kesop LLC and on Twitter at Aesop Podcast. To reach Brett with one T, email brett at kesop.com, on LinkedIn at Brett Kiesling, and most actively on Twitter at EO underscore Brett. Again, that's one T. This podcast has been produced by the Kesop Group. Technical assistance provided by Third Circle Inc. and Bitsy Plus Design. Original music composed by Max Kiesling. Archival podcast material edited and produced by Brian Kiesling. And I'm Bitsy McCann.